today we are talking about an article written by David Mealy and Abigail Scholler entitled The Role of Metamotivational Monitoring in Motivation Regulation, published in Educational Psychologists in 2018, uh, Volume 53, Issue 1. Um, I'm joined today by David. David is the Bueller Sesquicentennial Assistant Professor in the Department of Counseling, Developmental, and Educational Psychology at Boston College. He's also the Principal Investigator of the Motivation, Metacognition, and Learning Laboratory at Boston College. In his research, he examines students' beliefs about their ability, learning, and motivation, and examines how these beliefs influence their engagement in academic tasks. At the broadest level, he's interested in what it takes for students to become effective, independent learners. Uh, David co-edited the second edition of the Handbook of Motivation at School with Dr. Katherine Wenzel, and he was recently awarded the 2018 AERA Review of Research Award for an article on students' reasoning about effort and ability that was published in the Review of Educational Research in 2017. David, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. So I am really interested in your article. It touches upon a lot of things that I think about and a number of things that I hadn't thought about before. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Can you, to get us started, just give us a brief summary of your article and what you were trying to communicate? Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to. So um, I think what we were really trying to accomplish here was an, a, an extension of existing models of motivation regulation that really focused on how students monitor their motivational states. Because much of the research that's been done on motivation regulation up until recently really focused on what we might call metamotivational control. We use the term metamotivation to kind of broadly refer to kind of one's metacognitive thinking about motivational states. And if you think about it that way, then a lot of the work has focused on, in particular, what kinds of strategies, what kinds of motivation regulation strategies do students use in different contexts and for different tasks. But without a, a lot of thought as to how do students figure out what kinds of strategies would be appropriate, or even uh, when is it appropriate, um, or when you know when do they really need to um, implement a motivation regulation strategy? So, you know, it, the the work really stems in part from the work that Abby Scholler and I have done on examining students what we call meta motivational beliefs, their beliefs about different kinds of motivation and the appropriateness or the fit of certain kinds of motivation with particular tasks, um, which we think is a big component of how they monitor their motivation. So what we wanted to do was, since there wasn't a lot of work there to kind of guide our own thinking, is to kind of develop a model ourselves that we could use and that other researchers could use to think more about, you know, studies that they could do in this area. So it's clearly an important contribution. I think the monitoring aspect of motivation regulation, as you said, is, is uh, just an open area that really needs a lot of work. And so I think your article really helps us better understand what the issues are and how to put them together. I will say that I, I find that people often get a little confused between motivation, metamotivation, and volition. Can you kind of explain to us the the similarities and differences across those three terms? Yeah, I mean, I think much of the initial work in this area comes from volitional researchers like Kuhl and Lynn Corno, who were really conceptualizing volition as the factors that determine whether or not you will see a particular intention through all the way through to completion. So, you know, 
There are factors that determine whether or not you elect to engage in a task or to pursue a particular goal in the first place, and they result in some kind of active intention to engage. But those factors aren't always the same as the factors that determine once you've committed to an intention, whether or not you will persevere in fulfilling that intention when obstacles arise and, and, and you face certain kinds of challenges that might make you want to quit. And they came up with a different aspects of volitional control, some of which were referred to kind of more internal factors and others which referred to more kind of external factors like a regulation of environmental constraints. And, and that re research seemed to kind of paper off. I mean, it, it wasn't followed up a lot until I think um, Christopher Walters came along and basically picked it up, but from a more social cognitive perspective. He wanted, he essentially took a lot of the same ideas from volition, but applied it expectancy value, you know, approach to understanding when people are likely to engage in volitional control. And, um, you know, I think at that point it, it started, you know, people started talking about it more in terms of motivation regulation to fit in with the self-regulated learning framework that was dominant at the time. And that also comes from a more social cognitive perspective and stopped using the language of volition. And in meta-motivation, the term has kind of been around, not used that often. I, you know, there are a few people who've kind of tossed it around in just in passing in some of the, in some chapters and, and articles. But we're, I think, trying to give a much more kind of formal definition to it um, and to really talk about it as this kind of almost self-reflective metacognitive thinking about motivational states. And we really take, we borrow heavily from metacognitive frameworks that distinguish between metacognitive monitoring and metacognitive control. We talk about analogous processes of metamotivational monitoring and metamotivational control which are reciprocally related to each other. So meta-motivational monitoring being simply the ways in which students assess how motivated they are to engage in a particular task, but also whether or not they're motivated in the right way, whether the kind of motivation they're experiencing is a good fit for the demands of the current task. And then the output of that, of those kinds of assessments really feed into what you could describe as meta-motivational control, which is, okay, if you, if based on your monitoring, you identify a deficit in your current task motivation that might eventually lead you to quit prematurely, then, well, okay, what kinds of things can you do to prevent that from happening, right? And then, so you institute certain strategies. And then once you institute those strategies, which potentially bolster certain aspects of your motivation or eliminate interfering factors, um, then you have, again, have to monitor how you're doing on the task and whether your motivation is at a steady level um, that seems okay, or whether you again need to intervene and try to do something else to bolster your motivation because the previous strategy wasn't wasn't particularly effective. So that that's really helpful. And I, I think you mentioned that the interest in volition and ideas similar to the ones that you've explored in this article, research in that area kind of took a dip for a little while, which I thought was so interesting because if my social media feed is any indication, we talk about meta-motivation all the time in a very layperson kind of way, you know, with anything from, you know, I bit off more than I can chew here to, oh, I'm, you know, I'm so bored or it's really hard for me to finish this task or I got to go 
get myself a donut, to reward myself, to get through this. I mean, it seems like we talk about it and people talk about meta motivation all the time. But you're absolutely right. I think there's just so much research that we need to do in it. It's interesting that there was that dip in the scholarly work on it. Yeah, I think a lot of the, I mean, a lot of, if you go back and read Cool's work, it's amazingly interesting, but it's also very complex and very philosophical, right? Um, so there's a lot of deep theorizing about um, different kinds of psychological states, a lot of terminology, even the term volition itself, um, I think is is kind of difficult to kind of wrap your head around from a, a lay perspective, right? So not as easily accessible as talking about, you know, reflections on motivation. You know, keeping it in the, you know, keeping the terminology in the domain of motivation, I think, makes it easier for people to kind of wrap wrap their heads around and therefore, you know, connect it back to, you know, their their own, you know, experiences and intuitions, which like as you say, I think is something, you know, very common that comes up all the time that we you know, we're constantly thinking about what we can do to kind of sustain motivation, whether that be in an academic context or in, you know, in terms of maintaining an exercise regimen or dieting or, or not looking at so much social media or whatever it is. <laughs> Close to home there. So you, you talked quite a bit about your model, which I really want to get into because it's, it's very impressive and there's a lot of interesting things there. Before we get into the model itself, you made a, a choice I thought was really interesting. I was hoping you could just say a little bit about kind of why you made the choice you did. You chose to focus your meta-motivational model of motivation regulation on how students regulate to pursue specific task goals, like studying on, on an exam or for an exam, as opposed to higher level goals, like maintaining a particular GPA. Why that choice? Why that focus? I think there are a couple reasons. I think meta-motivation can be applied to a broad set of decisions um, that we make in our everyday lives. And when you consider those all together, the, the complexity of what you have to account for, I feel like is off the charts. So we need to kind of constrain the phenomena that we were trying to explain to a manageable subset, at least to begin with, right? Um, and so I, for me, the main consideration was between trying to explain task motivation or regulation of task motivation versus regulation of like commitment to multiple goals, which I think is in a really important topic and one that's in gaining increasing traction in educational psychology, but one which I think is, is you know, there hasn't been as much work done and it's very complicated. So we wanted to make the assumption that once a student had committed to a particular goal, we just then wanted to explain um, the extent to which they monitor progress towards that goal in terms of sustaining motivation and making sure that they kind of honor their original commitment. That's in contrast to what, you know, the complexity that you have to consider when you when you think about, okay, well, I had in addition to this one task goal that I have of, let's say, studying for a particular exam, I also have these three or four other academic goals, which I'm trying to negotiate simultaneously with you know, three or four other social goals. And each of them has different priorities. And as they come into conflict, I have to renegotiate those you know, priorities. And then I also have to kind of task switch. And that becomes very complicated. But in terms of what you said, in terms of the distinction between task motivation versus higher level motivation for higher level goals, I think most of the work that had been done already had been at the task level. So we, like I said, initially, we were trying to build 
from existing models of motivation regulation. And, and a lot of the work that Chris had done had really was measuring motivational regulation strategies um, at the task or you know, in some cases course level. I think uh, another big piece of the model was in terms of thinking about what the impetus for motivation regulation is, there's this kind of inherent paradox, right? Which is that where does the motivation to regulate motivation come from? The idea that you, you know, you, you want to bolster your motivation to ensure that you complete a particular task assumes in some sense that you already are motivated enough to want to do that, to put the effort in to then regulate your motivation. And so we had to posit a hierarchical model of goals and, and levels of motivation in order to make sense of that. And so we were focusing, you know, it was easier for us to focus down towards the bottom at the, or, you know, at the task level and to say, well, presumably motivation to engage in any particular task is, you know, at some level initially inherited from some higher order goal. And that over the course of engaging in a task, there are obstacles or costs that you experience that interfere or um, decrease that level of task motivation, despite the fact that you still have a strong higher order desire or, you know, sense of value and expectancy to, to want to achieve um, the lower order goal. And so I guess that it, you know, we wanted to pick two levels of the motivational hierarchy where we could explain people's behavior at one level and then use the higher order level to explain where the impetus or, or underlying motivation to engage in motivation regulation comes from, if that makes sense. I, that does make sense. And I think that what I'm hearing is kind of similar for me to other areas of literature where we look first at what's happening with individuals and in kind of certain set of circumstances or constrained environments or contexts. And once we get a sense of that, we can start building out. And I think you illustrated really well. It would be incredibly complex to start with a model where we're taking into account academic goals, social goals, interactions, group goals. I mean, that that feels like that's one or two steps down the line. Your model is already making a contribution. So I, I now I better understand why you focused on the task level and then those superordinate goals that are still individual that might affect a particular task level. Um, and you started touching upon a number of different things that I think are really interesting about your model. And one of the things that jumped out was this distinction between the quantity and quality of task motivation. Can you just talk a little bit about that and why we should be paying attention to both? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, most people's naive conception of motivation and even a lot of, in a lot of different academic camps, um, like particularly economic you know, conceptions of motivation, kind of treat motivation as this kind of single all-purpose energy, right? where, you know, it's really about how much fuel do you have in the tank, right? How motivated are you to engage in a particular task or to pursue a goal in a particular direction? Um, and that's an oversimplification of how motivation works. Like we know from a lot of research in uh, educational psychology, social psychology, from theories like self-determination theory, uh, regulatory focus theory, that there are qualitatively distinct types of motivation that, that are experienced in different ways and that are associated with different modes of processing. And that some modes of processing are better suited for certain kinds of tasks than for others. So, so some of the empirical work 
that Abby and I have done is really looked at college students, what we call meta-motivational beliefs about the trade-offs associated with promotion and prevention motivations, which are two different types of motivations described by regulatory focus theory. Real briefly, um, you know, a promotion focus is, is essentially a kind of growth-oriented motivational um, tendency that is really about pursuing gains and opportunities in your progress towards a particular goal. Whereas a prevention focus is more about safety and security and is really about um, preventing potential losses and guarding against threats that might keep you from realizing a particular goal. And there's a lot of, you know, there's both the theory and empirical research from social psychology suggests that a promotion focus is associated with more associative, creative, divergent processing. And that prevention focus is associated with more kind of careful, methodical, convergent information processing, right? Although there, you know, there are exceptions and presumably there are certain tasks that are where it might be better to think in more, you know, associative, creative, divergent ways. And there are other tasks where it might be more beneficial to think in more convergent, careful, methodical ways. So if you're engaged in a brainstorming task, you might, you know, you, you might perform better um, when you're promotion focused. And if you're doing, you know, if you're finishing up a paper and you have to proofread your work, you might want to be prevention focused in order to check for errors. And so those trade-offs seem to exist. And we were interested in, in the extent to which students kind of are aware of these trade-offs. So we've done studies to kind of where we say, okay, so you're going to, at the end of the study, you're going to have to do this particular task, which has these demands. And so maybe we describe a brainstorming task, or maybe we describe a proofreading task. And we say, oh, here are some various activities, like essentially preparatory activities that you could do in advance of that final task that you're going to do. And to what extent, you know, would you prefer to engage in this activity or that activity? And to what extent do you think it will lead to good performance on this final task? And when we measure it that way, we find that maybe it's unclear whether it's at an explicit or more implicit level, they have some understanding of these trade-offs, right? They, they get that, you know, you might, it might be better to kind of induce yourself into a promotion focus for a brainstorming task, or it might be better to kind of induce yourself into a prevention focus for, let's say, a proofreading task. So the, the idea here is that, and we've now investigated this in other areas, Abby and I, with one of her honor students, have been looking at um, trade-offs in kind of in intrinsic versus extrinsic motivations. We have some colleagues in social psychology, Ken Fujita at Ohio State has been doing work on in terms of construal level theory. So trade-offs between low-level concrete construals versus high-level abstract construals, which are kind of orientations, psychological distance orientations towards tasks. And we see that in all these cases, the students have some appreciation of the trade-offs between these kind of distinct or qualitatively distinct motivational orientations. So, I mean, we presume that since they have the, um, this kind of understanding that, you know, there might be some kind of monitoring of the fit between particular motivations and particular tasks that, that goes on, um, and that ultimately um, students may be shifting themselves into motivations um, or motivational orientations that will really optimize performance on on certain kinds of tasks. But we don't have, you know, a lot of this, we don't have evidence of yet. A lot of this is, is speculative. We, we need to go from just documenting that they have a kind of awareness of the trade-offs to 
okay, in the moment, can they use the this not this meta motivational knowledge to identify when there's a lack of fit between their current motivation and a particular task, and then take steps, engage in strategies to induce in themselves a more appropriate or better fitting motivation in order to optimize performance. See, I think that's a really interesting and important point, this fit idea. And it, it reminds me of things like cognitive flexibility. It, it just seems to me that in many areas of educational psychology theory and research, very understandably, we started in this place where we thought, well, the more advanced or the more there, there are more advanced or there are more availing strategies or motivations or emotions, or whatever, there was kind of good and bad. And your emphasis on fit, I think, is illustrating that in not just epistemic cognition or self-regulation or strategies, but also in, in motivation, it's about fit, that it's not the case that there's a kind of motivation that's always good or always bad, but rather that it depends upon the context in which you're trying to get done. Uh, I mean, I guess work avoidance may always not be so great, but, you know, there is this one that matters. And, you know, it kind of, it kind of reminds me of... Uh, when you talk to kind of lay people, they say, well, I just wish my wish my son was intrinsically motivated about school. And I'll say, like, well, intrinsically motivated for every subject in school. And they'll say yes. And I go, you know, that kind of sounds like a crazy person. <laughs> <laughs> no one's intrinsically motivated for everything. Like, that's not possible. Right. You know, and so you can have these more nuanced conversations. And the same thing's happening, like in strategy use research, where people are beginning to realize, like, you know, you don't need to constantly be using higher level strategies for tasks that, re that can be done well with other kinds of strategies. So I thought that fit piece that you brought to your article was really important. And something else that you mentioned was that you find that students actually have some insight into different kinds of motivation um, that, frankly, I was a little surprised about. I mean, it, it strikes me that it's not surprising that students have some sense of the different kinds of motivations they have, but it does seem they have more than maybe I would suspect. And that got me wondering about another part of your model, and that is costs and obstacles. So you talk about how costs and obstacles can affect motivational processing and motivation regulation. Is there any research out there showing that students have a, a good sense of how costs and obstacles work and what different kinds are? Um, not that I... No, at a, at a meta level, I mean, certainly there's, there's, I mean, the work on costs themselves and, and the different kinds of costs and how they influence um, students' motivation, it seems like it's it's just taking off now. But I don't know in terms of students, if, you know, any, any studies that measure students' understanding of costs, other than some of the work that was originally done by Chris and other people studying motivation regulation strategies, where I think they sometimes conflated costs and other kinds of situational factors into this very broad notion of kind of motivational problems, right? So they did talk about things that could be identified as costs, but like, like we say in the paper, how they describe contextual factors that they were studying in, in terms of their influence on, on the use of motivation regulation strategies, there would be things you would, you know, some things would be like what we would describe as a motivational feeling like boredom. And then there, then there would be you know, actual things like, you know, some kind of cost, like, like the, the nature, the, the dryness of the material, or, you know, maybe there would be an effort cost mixed in. And then there are things that just seemed just more kind of motivational in nature, like a, a lack of interest. Right. 
And so, you know, what we were trying to do is, I think that work was incredibly, it's been incredibly important just to kind of get the field going and really informative into to the, the development of our models. But we were just trying to kind of refine the semantics a little bit and say, it's really helpful and perhaps generative to, to separate out the components of underlying components of motivation, right? That students are targeting with particular strategies and separate that out from the different types of costs and obstacles that might undermine those components and then separate both of those out from certain kinds of feelings which serve as signals as to whether a particular component has been undermined or whether uh, there is a particular obstacle that's interfering with the component. Which again, I think is a really nice part of the model. And I like that distinction between motivation components, costs, obstacles, and then the feelings, the meta-motivational feelings that um, might signal for students what's going on for them. And that brings me to another point I thought was really interesting. And that was your argument about fringe consciousness and, and how that can actually aid processing. Can you talk a little bit about that? So this is like an idea that I've had for, for a while. Initially, in, in respect to metacognitive feelings, not necessarily metamotivational feelings. My view, I mean, you know, I come from a background on both metacognition and motivation. And a lot of my early research was on specifically on metacognitive uh, phenomena. So I spent a lot of time thinking about, well, what would be the function of these metacognitive feelings? Are metacognitive feelings epiphenomenal, you know, just kind of byproducts of certain processing? So when we experience feelings of disfluency or confusion, is it just is that just a byproduct of some underlying process or does it does it serve a function? And I'm very much of the view that these feelings really help to direct our cognitive processing um, you know, and serve a very important regulatory role without interrupting the focal cognitive processes. So put it this way, like if, you were, if your goal is to deeply understand some chapter that you're reading, um, you know, most of your cognitive processing really should be devoted to creating a very deep and coherent situation model of the text. And you're going to have to engage in all kinds of local and global inferencing. And that takes a lot of your executive resources. So what would happen if every time you felt confused about something, you just stopped and you know, said to yourself, wow, I'm really confused. Why am I confused? What should I do about the fact that I'm confused? It would completely you know, disrupt the flow of, your co of the focal processing and make it much less efficient or difficult to re-engage, it would be, yeah, just generally be very inefficient. So what these metacognitive feelings like confusion or disfluency do is it signals at, at some initial level that you, you need to engage in some kind of regula regulation that can happen at an automatic level. So as opposed to completely interrupting you know, what you're doing, it's signaling, okay, take one of those you know, strategies that you have in your portfolio or your arsenal, things that you've learned to do to regulate your, your reading and kind of use it now to kind of both maintain your focus on the text, but to kind of regulate whatever kind of interference there was. And then that might be like going back and rereading something. And then, of course, if, that if those automatic strategies don't work, then the, the signal, the metacognitive feeling will can just grow stronger to the point where it then does eventually disrupt the, con the focal conscious processing and allow you to then take steps to figure out 
or deliberately something that you can do to get back on track. And I think the same thing is potentially true here in terms of motivation regulation, right? That presumably these feelings of metamotivational feelings, like a feeling of boredom, is allowing you essentially to parallel process, right? It's allowing you both to stay engaged with the academic task itself, but also to simultaneously engage in some kind of regulation without devoting too, too much of your executive resources to the regulation itself and, and not to the focal task. Um, and so there are probably presumably certain kinds of strategies that we've deeply internalized and can automatically implement for regulating our boredom without having to completely stop and think about, okay, what should I do now? I'm so bored. Although presumably if the boredom signal gets really, really strong, then maybe, you know, because all the things that you've tried in order to make the task more interesting have failed, then eventually you might stop and try to actively think about what else could you do, or you might just stop completely. And so one thing I think is really interesting in regards to this that I think should be researched are, are kind of thresholds for these motivational feelings. The extent to which, you know, you know, how strong does a feeling have to be before um, some kind of automatic regulatory strategy kicks in and how much you know, and is there enough, another threshold above that initial threshold that can be reached where you actually stop and engage in conscious regulation? That makes a lot of sense to me. And I think it's a really interesting point that I agree really deserves more research. You know, I, it reminds me of this. Again, I think in some areas of research, we spent time demonizing certain ideas, like in, in strategy use, we said, well, you know, automatic strategies are bad. You should really be thoughtful about what you're doing. And in fact, automatic strategies can be good as long as you've automated the right strategy for the context and you're using it effectively. If so, keep automating, you know, that's going to help you be successful. But we do need a well-calibrated alert system. And you've really identified both at a metacognitive level and a metamotivational level, these feelings that if they are well calibrated, if they kick in when they're supposed to, can actually help you then move out of an automatic process and do something more deliberate um, to make a change that's necessary. And I, I think that's I think that's really insightful. I, I hope folks start doing some research in that area and helping people. I think we need to help people develop the automatic skills and then also develop the correct calibration for those feelings. Yeah, I think calibration is a great word for it, really. I mean, there's both, you know, to what extent are, you know, the feelings truly sensitive to, to, to actual disruptions in motivation or cognitive processing that need to be addressed? Um, you know, and are they, you know, being generated at the correct moments, right? All of that is can be thought of as, as things that we can help students to do calibration-wise. And I, I agree, like, you know, you would know a lot more about this than me, but my my intuition early on was always that maybe one of the the reasons why certain kinds of metacognitive training programs, educational interventions where where we teach kids how to metacognitively self-assess and choose strategies during, let's say, you know, a reading comprehension test, the reason why they may not always have been as effective as we liked is because, you know, we focus so much on them explicitly going through a list of steps, right, that they have to take in order to be well-regulated. And don't then take it a step further to make sure that those steps are, you know, fully automated and can be implemented 
um, kind of seamlessly without diverting resources from what they really are supposed to be doing, which is understanding the material. Yeah, it's almost like an expertise reversal effect, right? It's like, you know, I've okay, I've got it down. I know how to do it. Stop making me, you know, verbalize all the steps and think carefully about it. Just let me automate. Yeah. And I mean, maybe we just also don't take it far enough. I mean, maybe we, I mean, the, the kids find it useful initially, but they, you know, when left to their own devices and when we're not scaffolding it for them, you know, we, we haven't worked with them well long enough to really get them to be doing these things automatically on their own. It's a hard thing to do. I think that there's a lot of promise in computer-based tutors, the kinds of things that you've investigated for doing that, right? Because it can can be like a seamless kind of online scaffold in a way that maybe a, a teacher or a peer couldn't be. Right. And the thing that's laudable about a lot of that research is they focus on the fact that it's not scaffolding if you don't fade. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, you know, I, I when I teach uh, courses for educators, I'll say like, if you don't fade scaffolding, then you're just helping. And that's, that's not enough. Um, yeah, I think this is, I think this is a really interesting area for future research. And I, I do kind of wonder, particularly when, in terms of the meta motivational feelings and this fringe consciousness idea, it just reminds me of people that say things like they're too much in their head. Like maybe they're oversensitive to their feelings. I know that there have certainly been times where I am worried that I'm not doing well, or I'm worried that something's wrong. And I just find myself focusing too much on my emotions and not kind of paying attention to the task. And that that leads me to wonder if maybe there is like a calibration issue there where you need to help people realize when maybe they go too far the other direction. Yeah. And it's something, I mean, one of the things that Abby and I have been trying to investigate, I say try because we, I don't think we've been successful in it um, for, for a long time is, is our kind of individual differences in what might, might be described as a metamotivational awareness or sensitivity. And so we've um, modified like self-reflection and self-insight scales uh, to see if that predicts kind of measures of metamotivational accuracy. And, and we get very mixed results, nothing nothing very reliable or, or consistent. So it's unclear right at this point whether really there is, there are like these general individual difference factors that predict sensitivity across the board. And when, I'm, when I say across the board, I mean in terms of their, you know, students' awareness of a, a variety of different metamotivational signals for different metamotivational dimensions, right? Like promotion prevention versus intrinsic extrinsic, or whether the knowledge is very local, right? And there and, and so it's very hard to predict whether a student would have developed a sensitivity in one for one type of motivation um, but not for the other, right? But I also think another thing that you said also in terms of general individual differences, I think you mentioned cognitive flexibility and that's something else that we're we're really interested in exploring as well. Like, are there certain kinds of individual differences in executive fun function which predict students' propensity to engage in this kind of meta-motivational shifting between orientations? Well, and the executive function literature really would benefit from a, more attention to these meta-motivational and um, kind of meta-feeling aspects. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I, would say, I should say there's a lot of kind of analogous research going on right now in in the emotion regulation literature that we've been very influenced by, um, particularly work by Maya Tamir, who's looked at the kind of, I mean, a lot of our paradigms for investigating metamotivational beliefs come from initially from her work investiga investigating the kind of 
functional role of emotions. So the way in which people potentially use emotions to kind of prepare themselves for certain kinds of tasks. Perhaps they like actually feel that being in an angry state is beneficial when engaging in some kind of you know argumentation task or something like that. Yeah, and also that there's a lot of work now in emotion regulation research in general, kind of exploring similar ideas about flexibility, right? The idea, you know, initially, a lot of the work from James Gross and others was always oriented towards the idea that like reappraisal was always better than suppression. But there's newer work that suggests that there are some times when suppression seems to be better than reappraisal and vice versa, right? So it really depends on that person by context interaction. That makes a lot of sense. Well, and you're, what you've been saying over the course of our time together really illustrates what I think is one of the great contributions of the paper is that there's just so many directions to go for future research. There's so many good ideas in here that need exploration. Uh, I really enjoyed reading the paper and it sparked in me a lot of really what felt like new ideas or certainly at least things I hadn't thought about before that made me want to kind of do some research in this area. So I want to thank you and Abby for writing the paper. And I want to encourage everyone to check out the paper. Again, it's in Educational Psychologist 2018, Volume 53, Issue 1. And uh, David, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us today. All right. Thank you very much, Jeff. 